If no one sheds light on what is being done in the darkness, it will never stop. One in three girls and one in six boys are sexually abused and told to hush. Breaking the silence is the first step to healing. Healing is a lifelong journey. Find your voice. Your story matters. Pain put me into hiding. Purpose called me out. May the silence be broken. Thanks for listening to the One Voice Podcast. It's a safe place for conversation on relevant topics with real life stories to encourage and inspire you along life's journey of healing from sexual abuse. I'm Mary O'Brien and now Nicole Braddock Bromley. Wow. Again, what a year. What a year. (laughs) This is just such a an amazing opportunity to constantly just talk to the movers and shakers um, in recovery and survivors who are not only, you know, just sharing their story with others, but really owning it and being willing to be a breath of fresh air to others who are out here. So if we, as we are just beginning to look at a new year and think about, you know, where do we want to go this year? The, the, the path is wide open to us. We've been through some hell and (laughs) I think that we can look towards the future and really have a lot of hope. And so today I feel like I have the perfect guest to share with you today. Her name is Jen Elizabeth. Welcome to the one voice podcast, Jen. Good morning. Hello. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. It is morning where you are. Oh, right. Yeah. I assume everybody's where I'm at. (laughs) It's all about me, right? It's all about me. (laughs) (laughs) Truly every day. I never know what time it is. So we're good. I mean, I Uh, looked at the clock last night. I was working. I was like, it's 130 in the morning. Like, uh, what does that even mean anymore? (laughs) I know, right? (laughs) I was still wearing the same pajamas I think I'd worn for 48 straight hours. So it didn't really matter. Oh, boy. <laughs> oh, I get it. I get it. A hundred percent. Come on, Mary. Oh, I mean, <laughs> okay. Well, you, oh, leave, you leave for the office more often than I do. I do. Yeah. Okay. Well, stop judging me. I'm not. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Mary's judging. Mary's judging over I there. Know. But at least I'm honest. When I judge, I will be honest and I'll let you know. And I'm really not this time. I'm too tired to judge. Okay. <laughs> Well, Jen, I know um, just your story is so powerful and I would love for you, you know, we'll get into recovery and just um, a lot about addiction and different things like that as far as your journey goes and just the resurrection of your story and your new book and all of that. But if you wouldn't mind just beginning from the, the start, you know, your story and just kind of bring us to date. I always take a deep breath when someone says, oh, what's your story? It's like, yeah. <gasps> Well, we will all take a breath. Yes. Everybody take a deep breath. (laughs) You, you know, you, you identify as a sexual abuse survivor. And I think that is the one common thing that most of our listeners can relate. But as we all know, sexual abuse survivor carries with it a lot of things, you know, we've got our coping, (laughs) we, we carry different types of shame and different wounds. And so, but just kind of going back to the commonality of the abuse and kind of where did you grow up, you know, and I know, you know, your family moved a lot. So just talk about some of the dynamics there. So for me, basically the, the way that I can describe how it all began for me is that I was born into pain that didn't belong to me. Mm. That's probably the most simple way I can put it is that, you know, I was born into a family that had a lot of pain of their own 
Um, and really the best way that all children know how, at, you know, their young ages to kind of cope with that is to just like learn how to carry it. And so, you know, from, you know, my very first memories really, and a lot of my memories are very hazy and very in and out. And that's part of disassociation. That's part of survival. um, And I really honor that today. Um, But a lot of, you know, my very first memories are just of me trying to figure out what was wrong with me um, and how to make people love me. Mm. And, you know, I can remember like laying on the floor with my head smashed against the carpet for so long that I'd have like indentations from the carpet, you know, on my cheeks. Mm -hmm. And I was trying to peer underneath the crack of my mom's bedroom door. You know, I just wanted to be close to her and I wanted her to take notice of me and to tell me that she loved me. And um, I just really wanted to be seen. Mm-hmm. And she just wasn't capable. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my mom has a lot of mental health issues, um, a lot of trauma. And, you know, she just had so much of her own um, turmoil that she just wasn't able or willing to, um, I should say able and willing to um be be a mom yeah you know and so I didn't understand any of that of course no one ever sat us down and and said you know this isn't your fault you know because my mom would tell us you know tell me especially that you know I made her sad and you know she would attempt suicide a lot and um you know I would be walking the streets looking for for my lost mother, you know, with the police. And I just remember, you know, my mouth would be numb and I'd be shaking on the inside. And I, all, all I ever thought was what did I do that makes mommy not love me? And what's really important for children who have been abused in in any way, whether that be physically, um, spiritually, emotionally, sexually, whatever, Mm -hmm. What's really important for people to understand who have never been through that, or maybe for someone to hear who has, and maybe has never heard this before, is that abuse does not change the way a child sees their abuser. It changes the way a child sees themselves. Mm -hmm. And so the truth of it is that my mother is my first abuser. And that is something that has taken me a very long time to really digest, I think. Yeah. Um, you know, but it, I would look in the mirror and see her pain. You know, I, I didn't see myself anymore. I didn't have a self. Um, and so that theme just kind of carried out throughout pretty much the entirety of my life. Um, my parents, well, you think about it as a, as a girl, I think a lot of times growing up, your mom is like a mirror to you of who you're supposed mm-hmm. to want to be. Mm-hmm. Right. And I so you want to be seen, but you also want to see a reflection of your future. <laughs> there's a lot of 
books and articles and studies done about like the daddy syndrome, the girls mm-hmm. who have, um, you know, dysfunctional or broken relationships with their fathers. And then they grow up and they start dating men just like their dads. And, but there's not a lot about what happens between daughter and mother's relationships that are shattered. That's right. Um, I think there's a couple of reasons for that. I think um, one is (laughs) there is this weird myth that and lie that we are sold in society in you know the world that all women who give birth to a child are inherently able to be nurturing Mm. and that is not true Mm -hmm. um and so it's very difficult to speak out about that yeah it's very difficult to to say that my mother was very abusive and I no longer want a relationship with her Mm. people but that's your only mother and she loved you the best that she could and there's lots of stuff that comes out that's very harmful to a survivor um, can be very shaming and unless you have been there And even if you have been there, whatever route you took to heal from it is your route. There is no universal truth in healing. That's right. None. Everybody Mm -hmm. has a different journey. Everybody has a different, you know, way that they are able to Mm -hmm. empower themselves and their story and live free. And Mm -hmm. I cannot live free with my mother in my life. Yeah. Good for you for recognizing that. Yeah, it's a really long time, you know? Yeah, Yeah, I bet. I mean, especially because of all the messages that you probably were receiving of, you know, and a lot of them can be, you know, from a good heart from people in the church, but they don't get it because they've not lived it and they don't know the importance of the decisions (laughs) that you had to make for your health. And my children's health. My mother is not a very safe person. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, part of her mental health issues is that she has Munchausen and Munchausen by proxy, which is, you know, if anyone listening does not know what that is, if you've ever seen, um, there's some, (laughs) yeah, it's It's not very commonly talked about. It is not very commonly talked about, but in a nutshell, um, it is where someone Munchausen is, uh, where they inflict harm to themselves, physically, emotionally, all of it. And by proxy is when they harm their children. Mm. And they do that for um, the attention. It's actually their identity. Their identity becomes revolved around um, the attention they get from others by saying, you know, oh, you're so strong to be able to survive all these sicknesses. And oh, your children are sick again and hurt again. And oh my God, what an amazing mom you are. And in the background, they're doing it themselves. Mm. And there's a lot of Netflix, you know, and other documentaries done. Sharp Object is one that just hits me so hard. Um, But yeah, so I can't have her around my children (laughs) because, Mm -hmm. you know, I grew up with her. So I am clearly aware and unfortunately know exactly what she does in order to feel the love that she's looking for. And that is to harm other people. And so, yeah. um, 
part of the problem is that are part of the heartbreak about the whole situation, especially how I feel so sad for my mom is that, you know, we joined a religious cult when I was three. My parents um, obviously did not know they were joining a cult. (laughs) They Mm. thought they were joining a real, you know, um, a Jesus movement. Um, It was back in the seventies that a lot of them were happening. You know, that was kind of the thing, more of the thing back then. Uh Um, and you know, it was presented as something, you know, where you would raise your children outside of this worldly, you know, evil and, and all these things. And I'm sure it sounded really wonderful. And, you know, all these families packed up, said goodbye to their other, you know, their natural families and friends and moved across the country. Mm. Um, and we all lived in the same area. We all ate from the same co-op we all went to the same school we were no longer allowed to talk to anyone Mm. aside from the people in the congregation and when you isolate and segregate people that is a prime perfect um you know scenario for abuse to go on and go undetected Mm -hmm. absolutely and so everybody was abused um everybody was financially abused um as the years went on and spiritually and they controlled everything down to the type of sex that the men had with their wives how they looked they all had to have beards and just you know they knew everything about every family there was Mm -hmm. file cabinets with each family's name and just explicit personal financial everything information in there Mm. and they knew my mother had mental health issues but they believed and we were told and taught that that was not a medical or mental health you know that was nothing about it was the devil and it was her giving into the to the devil wow so she was not treated and our family was kind of cast as this family that was giving into evil temptation, all of us. Wow. And, you know, one day, you know, I, I don't remember the very first time. I just know that, um, you know, I was one of the elders who we were taught was closer to God than any of us, you know, um, he called me into his office and he had me sit on his lap and he started coloring with me in coloring books and memorizing Bible verses mm-hmm. and playing with my hair. Grooming. Of it was course. grooming, of course, which yeah. I know now. Yes. Um, but I was so happy, you know, it was like, you know, I was starved for love. I was a child that came from a home that was so, there was so much going on all the time that I was just always in a corner hiding. Mm. And here is this man who I believe is like God. And he, he tells me that I'm good and he wants to color with me. Mm -hmm. And I enjoyed my time with him. And, um, you know, over the years, and over the space of time, you know, unfortunately, that t- the time with him became so confusing um, and so uh, 
uncomfortable and um, I just, I could not process it. And so I would leave my body to him and I would drift off into my imagination. And, you know, he molested me until I was 10. Um, He molested me in the name of God, in the name of God's love. Oh, I'm so sorry, Jen. In the name of keeping my family in that church. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was so many mixed feelings of levels of I felt proud of myself for being close with him. I mm-hmm. felt like this is love. I did not know love before that. So I had no, nothing to kind of compare it to. Mm-hmm. So what it taught me was that love means having people touch my body. Right. And what it taught me is that love means pain and confusion and confliction and secrets. Mm-hmm. And he never told me not to tell anybody. I just somehow knew. And, and that is something that I carried with me well into my late thirties, mid thirties, um, was that the fact that I never told anybody that made me feel that I was a participant. I could not even say the V word, the victim word for Mm. years. I had no connection to that word. I felt that it was, if I had been uncomfortable or didn't want it, I would have told somebody, Mm -hmm. but the truth is that even at five and six and seven, that my heart and my mind knew that no one would have protected me anyways. Mm. There was no one to tell. Yeah. And so I kept it a secret. Right. Right. And, you know, when I was 10, my, my dad, finally, a man started coming around secretly trying to rescue families. So by this time, you know, after all those years, other people's families started, you know, really getting concerned because no one was had any communication with anyone. Wow. Yeah. So a man started coming around and offering to secretly help families escape. Um, and that gave my dad a, a push, I guess, you know, mm-hmm. to say, wow, there is something bad going on here. And we were there yeah. one day. And then I just remember the next day we were loading up no one was there to say goodbye. We were just gone. Wow. Had he spoken with the family at all about, you know, his questions about what was going on or like it wasn't talked about. And then all of a sudden you were just gone. It just wasn't talked about. Wow. Yeah. Which is a very common theme in my family. We don't talk about anything. So it's like we sweep everything under the rug and there's just a thousand pink elephants in the room that you can hardly breathe. But as long as, as long as we don't talk about it, then it's not, it's not real, Mm. you know? And so we were just gone. Yeah. And I thought, thank effing God, (laughs) you know, Mm. because at 10, the abuse um, became more, I'm very careful with how I share my story because I know things I don't like to be too triggering. It's really unnecessary, but the abuse became very uncomfortable. Yeah. It was progressing. Uh And so I started dreading when I saw his face and his beard 
Oh. I just started. It was no longer a happy time. It was, I just felt sick inside. So sick. Um, And so I thought, thank goodness I'm out. You know, I can leave, you know, I can leave it all behind me and it's, it's over now. Right. (laughs) You you didn't even have to tell, like you just were rescued from your, the abuse. I was just rescued. Uh And, um, but it all came with me, Mm. you know, that it it all, I didn't realize any of Mm. it. I had no, of course I'm 10, but obviously, and my family never, ever talked about any type of therapy Mm. or mental health. I had no idea what trauma was or Mm -hmm. trauma responses or any of that stuff. You know, I just thought again, that obviously something is really wrong with me because, you know, we moved away from there Mm -hmm. back to where the same town I live in now. So I've lived in here, lived here since I was 10. Yeah. Okay. And uh, I started having nightmares and Mm -hmm. flashbacks Mm -hmm. and um, what I didn't realize was disassociation, but I would lose major, tra- major gaps of time. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So major, common. yeah. Major gaps of time. Um, and just felt really gross and just, mm. you know, but I couldn't pinpoint why I still didn't really look back at my childhood and think that I didn't know that that was wrong, wrong or weird. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, no one else was talking about that. It's not like <laughs> right. your friends were sitting around at slumber parties sharing their <laughs> stories, you know, right. Right. We all totally. are holding this thing that we're like, we hate it, but we can't talk about it. And we can't understand why yeah, I just could not grasp yeah. what was going on. I just yeah. knew that I felt different than everybody. Uh, sure. I couldn't relate to my, uh, to the other girls. Everything just felt, I felt like an alien, I think. Mm. And so, um, you know, that, from 10 to about 12 was like, man, really hard for me. Um, Well, it was like you were rescued from the horrid thing that you were surviving, you know, Mm -hmm. like, and then you don't have to go through that anymore, but I'm sure everything just came crumbling in as far as just the feelings and the memories and the nightmares and the flashbacks and the dissociation. So that makes a lot of sense. So that's from 10 to 12. You're starting to feel all of that. Yeah. And then what happens? So at around 12, I started, you know, my mom's mental health took, which was shocking, but it took a really big turn for the worse, which as if it wasn't bad enough, she loved that church. She Mm -hmm. still loves that church. She did Mm -hmm. not want to leave. And it really just the, um, you know, the, the, you know, disappearing and having to find her on the side of the freeway and mm. all these things just started happening like really regularly. Mm-hmm. And I'm, you know, around 12 and my, my own, you know, hormones are starting to move and I'm, and I'm just questioning like, you know, sexuality, all this stuff, you know, and I'm just so lost and so alone. And I started um, planning to end my life. I I started, you know, really um, watching my mom and the ways that she would attempt and really taking mental note of what doesn't work. Mm -hmm. It's very scary. Um, Mm -hmm. 
you know, when I think back to how close I got, you know, how actively I was actually planning to just wipe myself off this earth because I just felt that I was not lovable. Mm. Um, And then I found alcohol at 12 Mm. and alcohol saved my life. And that is a very interesting thing to say. Maybe (laughs) for some people it is. Yeah. (laughs) But um, I don't think I would have made it much longer without at least attempting to end end my life. Had I not found what alcohol and drugs really are, are just a way to cope. Mm. And so like my whole thing today and this today as a woman now is to really take away that big yucky, scary, you know, um, judgmental thing about drugs and alcohol and just remove that and just really speak about the fact that it is the same type of coping as people who have eating, you know, eat too much or eat too little Mm -hmm. shopping, porn, um, disassociation, all these things are just ways to cope with, pain and trauma. Yeah. Yeah. And so just as disassociation literally saved me from something I could not process on my own, Mm -hmm. alcohol saved me from something I could not process on my own. Mm -hmm. The problem (laughs) with alcohol and drugs is that then they flipped on me and they almost took my life as well. So it's like this, it's like this trade-off, you know, it helped me cope, but then it took my, it took everything from me. Man. And like, how do you know where the threshold is? You know what I mean? You don't, that's the problem. You don't know you're in trouble. You don't know you're in trouble till you are. And once you are, that then it's very difficult to then re reverse yourself. So yeah, it's, it's a very, and that, and that's the thing is, is that's why it's so important for people to really recognize the link between trauma and addiction. It is like this two way highway that just loops back and into itself. You know, it's like, you know, addiction is so common with people with unresolved trauma Mm -hmm. because it is an excellent way to cope but then it just starts destroying your life. And no matter which, you can't just remove one mm-hmm. and be successful. If you remove the drugs, the trauma is still there. You know, people assume right. if you m- remove the drugs then you should be fixed, right? The drugs are <laughs> causing you to go to jail or get DUIs. Or be, yeah. That's know. the one they can see. <laughs> yes. But the problem is, is that actually removing the drugs and alcohol without treating the trauma is so dangerous because the trauma is really what's the driving force between behind, you know, people being willing to die in order to cope in order to avoid that pain. Yeah. So, yeah. So my life just basically went down, you know, once I, once I figured out that there was an answer to how I felt There was a way to be able to sit in my own skin. There was a way to stop, you know, that 
the shame, the beast of shame that was just growing inside of me. Once I figured out there was an answer, I ran to that answer. Wow. And I never looked back. Wow. And how old were you? And what did that look like? So, I mean, I was drinking problematically from my first drink at 12. Mm -hmm. And um, that I did never, I did not stop. So I drank and drank and drank and drank until, you know, the the longer you run from something, the the larger it grows. Mm -hmm. So although I was able to cope with it, it doesn't mean that all those feelings were just growing behind me. I kind of like, it kind of reminds me of, and I even talk about this in my book about the scene in Forrest Gump where he's, he's running, right. He's just mm-hmm. running across the state or the country, whatever he's doing. Yeah. And slowly all these people are gathering behind him and he ta- takes no notice. He's just running. <laughs> right. And then one day he just stops in the middle of the road and he says, I think I'll go home now. And he <laughs> turns and he turns around and there's thousands of people. Yeah. That's kind of what running from trauma is like, Man. it's like, you're I've running. never heard anyone say that. That's a real clear picture. Wow. It's like you're running and you're running and you think you're alone and you think you're alone. And then there is going to come a day where you want to stop. Yeah. But then you turn around and you have just accumulated so much through the years that you didn't even realize were showing up. Hmm. And it, yeah. So That's interesting. I I know Mary and I have talked quite a bit, just, you know, we know somebody that, you know, a few people who are going through their recovery and, you know, through the 12 steps and all of that and the reparations that you have to do, like that really shows you like how, how much work you have to put in to what is following you around. Yeah. It's, it's definitely not a, a easy undertaking. It's, it's quite big. And, uh, so yeah, I turned, I, I did that my entire adult life till, Mm -hmm. you know, alcohol wasn't working anymore. And I started on, on the pills, you know, um, opiates Mm -hmm. and, um, I just, you know, I had no sense of self. I had no, um, love for myself or care for myself. I, I just felt, um, I had no concern about if I were going to die. Um, and I, I couldn't even look at myself in the mirror. I, I remember I would brush my hair with my eyes closed and I would peek through my eyelashes. Like I can remember this very clearly peek through my eyelashes just with one eye, just to kind of glance and I shut them again. I couldn't even look at myself. Hmm. It just was. So I had so much hatred for who I was. Hmm. And, um, you know, I ended up um, on heroin and meth and using needles and um, living under bridges and wow. eating from garbage cans. Wow. And my teeth, my teeth were falling out, coming out, breaking off. Mm-hmm. I had abscesses and track marks all over my body, you know, in and out of the jail. Pit, the pit of addiction. Yeah. Mm. In and out of jail and institutions. Um, you know, I was re- uh, victimized and, and raped. And, um, you know, I, it's interesting because I constantly found myself around 
I was actually drawn toward predators, mm-hmm. which is another very, very common thing for yeah. children who have been abused. Mm-hmm. You know, you seek out what you've been taught sub- uh, subconsciously. Um, and many children, survive, you know, adult survivors of child abuse find themselves um, re-victimized and, you know, things happening throughout their life. And it's, and we feel that there must be something wrong with us, but it's not. It's just that we are subconsciously seeking out what we know. And so I, you know, all these things that happen in my addiction are horrible. I mean, horrible, right? Just, right. I mean, ugh. I mean, I just think about it. It's just like, it's just, it's pretty much like a movie, just bottom, bottom, bottom. But none of that felt more terrifying to me than having to stop and turn around and look at my childhood. I just could not do it. Wow. That is, that is a powerful statement. So looking back then you're looking backward at the damage basically that has been following you, right? And you're saying Mm -hmm. that to you in that moment looked bigger than even all that you just had talked about that you'd been through that. I mean, I would say all of our listeners would consider hell on earth that you'd lived (laughs) through, you know, and you're saying that wasn't even as hard and as heavy as looking back at everything following you that you had to face. Mm. Yeah. I mean, it just, wow. It felt impossible. Mm. You know, I was willing to die to avoid that pain. I feel that. And you, and you assume, you know, in logical terms, like if you avoid pain, you assume that that's a good thing, right? Like, like Mm. to avoid burning yourself or to avoid cutting yourself or avoid painful people. But when it comes to trauma survivors and abuse survivors, avoiding the pain is actually going to destroy you. Mm. And the pain that we are just so sure will swallow us whole if we dare even look at it. Like that is actually where the absolute gold of who I am is. Right. Facing it head on. Yep. Feeling what you had to feel. Every treasure about me lives like in the cracks mm-hmm. of, of my life. Mm-hmm. It doesn't live in my quote unquote proud moments or moments where, mm-hmm. you know, society would give me claps or applaud me. It lives in those dark times. Yeah. It lives in the times that, you know, other people from the outside would look and be like, Oh my God, that's horrible. Aren't you glad that's over? Yeah. I'm glad it's over, but I don't ever discard it. Wow. That's a powerful statement. You know, Jen, as I talk about my abuse and I often say, you know, that healing was like, a lot of baby steps. It wasn't the sprints on the healing journey that has carried me to this place of being able to speak out and talk about, you know, my pain, but it's been the little things. So that's, it reminds me of what you're saying of like the times when I had to look someone safe dead in the eye and tell them the worst things that I remembered. I didn't Mm want to do that, but those were the things that helped remove the shame for me. You know, when I had someone respond appropriately or when I, you know, took the hard step of, you know, confronting someone who'd hurt me or things like that. I'm hearing you say like 
those for you were the same. Those are the mile markers, the the things you mm-hmm. thought you could never do or the things that you never thought you'd make it through. Those were the mile markers for you and your healing. Yeah. It's definitely a lifetime journey. Yeah. Um, you know, it will never be something that I am finished with. Right. Um, the difference is today at the phase and how long that I've been on the, on this journey, the longer you stay with it is that to say that this healing journey will never end does not frighten me anymore. Hmm. It's good. actually gives me a little bit of a feeling of excitement or anticipation because I've had, I've had time to have like proof and experiences where I know that when I have a really dark time, cause they still come where things come up and it's like, I'm just thrown against a wall and it's like, where did this come from? Mm. Um, I then remember all these experiences where that's happened before. And when I sit with it and stay with it, like I become even just a little bit more free after. And so now it's like, I don't dread the fact or the statement that this is something I'll be, I will be facing for the rest of my life Mm -hmm. because I know that at the end of every darkness that I just become even an even more free me. Yeah. When when I sit with more, right. There's always more. Yeah. Yeah. And that gets me excited too. You know, just the thought that will never be our best self. And that's not a bad thing. It's Mm-mm. it's an amazing thing to know, like God always has more for us. There's more healing. There's more recovery. There's more healthy community. There's more love in the world for us to experience. And that that's exciting. Yeah, it is exciting. It can be very, yeah, dreadful in the beginning to think, you know, a lot. I have people that don't quite understand how trauma work or trauma healing goes. And, you know, I'll say that, you know, this is, there is no end for me here. Yeah. And they're like, gosh, that's really, oh, oh, that must be so heavy, but it's really not. It's really, um, mm-hmm. you know, it's very empowering because today I own my own, I own that trauma healing and I own my story. Yeah. And I own every part of every, everything I've ever been through or every mistake or wrong turn or, or way that I've used to cope with whatever. Um, it's all built me to be who I am today. And yeah. so I would not, and I, and I, there is a difference between being thankful for your abuse or your abuser and not wanting to change it. So I am never right. thankful to my abuser. Mm-mm. That is not a place I will probably ever reach. And I'm not thankful to have been abused. However, all of it has built me to be who I am today. And I would not change a single, a single minute of my entire life, because if I just removed one thing, maybe I'd be different. And Mm -hmm. I, and I today know that I don't want to be different. Wow. That's a quite a level of gratitude knowing (laughs) your story. I'm wondering as you, go back to that time when you said you looked back and, Mm -hmm. you know, you had to make basically the next right step. What would you say that would be? Now I know you've already said everyone's journey is different. So your Mm -hmm. step might not be what someone else's would be, but could you name a step or a few things that you felt were just like hardcore decisions for 
your future to get you here? Was there anything you could really name? You know, did you confront your mom? Did you um, seek therapy? Did you enter support group? Um, you know, things like that. Um, yeah. So, I mean, there's been a lot of stuff, a lot of, of steps and a lot of steps that I have come to know were actually not helpful. We're actually mm. um, more harmful than helpful for me. Okay. I ended up in prison. So I saw your mugshot. <laughs> Did you? Isn't it lovely? My. It's yeah. Your oh transformation my. is wild. <laughs> like you were. Yeah. That's... Yeah. Yeah. Wild. Right. Yeah. So yeah. I ended up in prison uh-huh. and uh, there are drugs and alcohol in prison obviously if people don't realize that there are, but it's not um, as plentiful as easy to get. So I had the, the fog of just so many years of just using to the point of just barely functioning, barely existing on this earth. Um, The fog began to clear a little bit. Yeah. Um, And I was able to kind of, although I was using in prison, um, it was not as much. And I was able to kind of like really take in like what, where my life was. Mm. Also, you know, a prison is not rehabilitation. I do not, it is, you can go either direction. Um, but what prison did for me is provide my basic needs. So food, water, clothing, a bed, shelter. Mm -hmm. When people do not have that, it is very difficult to face anything else about themselves when you are constantly in a fight to just take care of basic human needs. Yeah. Which is why I work so much with the houseless community. Mm. But um, people are very quick to judge somebody that is unhoused and um, living on the streets and, you know, oh, well, they just need to choose to do this and choose to do that. But when you do not have food or protection or water or toilet paper and you're bleeding all over your pants because you have your period and there's assaults happening and you can't leave your tent because someone's going to take everything and you have no social security card and you have... I mean, this, it's like, you know, it is impossible, not impossible, but it's very, very very difficult, (laughs) nearly impossible to have the space in your mind to even attempt to better your life. I mean, it's like, so prison did provide those things, which gave me the space to not have to worry about food or where I'm going to go pee or all those things that I used to just were consuming to me mm-hmm. as, as a unhoused person. And I remember, and this is May 1st, 2011. This is my recovery date. I was sitting in prison and I was looking out this like little window in my cell at this like small patch of grass that, you know, we used to walk around when, mm-hmm. you know, when it was yard time. And just this overwhelming, just uh, quiet came over me. Um, and nothing is quiet in prison. Everything's very loud. And just this, for a moment, it got very quiet. 
And I just like looked around at, you know, my metal bunk and my one metal locker. I didn't even own a pair of pants. I had nothing to, to my name. Um, and the cement walls. And it just kind of hit me that like, this is going to be the sum total of my life until I'm dead whenever that happens. And it's not happening soon enough is what I felt. Um, if something, if I don't make a change somewhere and this little spark just ignited that finally believed just a tiny bit. I mean, the tiniest little spark, just a little bit that maybe I was worth more than like overdosing in a riverbed as a transient alone. Yes. Just maybe. And the power of tiny sparks, the power of small steps, the power of just a hug, a smile, kindness. I mean, it's a wildfire now. And, and so I never discard work that I do with the unhoused community or with sex workers or people that are the society wants to discard unless they make enormous changes that the system's already set up for them not to even be able to do. Right. Right. Exactly. So it's like, until you want to get sober or Mm -hmm. until you change your entire lifestyle, we're going to discard you as a piece of trash. Mm -hmm. So these little sparks of love and acceptance and kindness and food and and whatever it happens to be they go a long way they stay with somebody preach and they that add is such up. a word that is such a word for us today you know especially for survivors who have privilege you know yes. we have a lot of pain a lot of trauma to work through and many of us even have a hard time you know finding the right counselor or paying for counseling, but we have so much privilege when you look at, you know, survivors like you who have gone through all of this and are just crawling, trying to survive, trying to find a spark. Like we can give sparks to other people, no matter where we are on our healing journey, there's always someone behind us that we can offer something to, and that could save them. Oh, and the thing for me is that, to love someone without an agenda is really important Mm. to love somebody without an expectation that that love is going to completely give them in 180 that day to change their life to how you expect them to live, but just to love them because they're worthy of love period. And so that spark just grew. I mean, that's May 1st, 2011. So Mm. I will be in recovery almost 10 years coming up in May. Congratulations. That's awesome. That is the first thing for me that I removed was the drugs and alcohol. So for me, you know, that I, I really assumed that was my problem, (laughs) you know, like, obviously this is why I'm in prison. This is why I'm losing my teeth and I am destroyed in a million ways. It's not my childhood. It's not trauma. It's the drugs and alcohol. So everyone's telling me it's the drugs and alcohol. The law is telling me it's the drugs, you know? So I, rem- I, I, I thought, well, that's what I need to do. I, I cannot use anymore because that is what's destroying my life. And so, although I'm so grateful for that every single day and for me, sobriety has been pivotal to my being able to heal my life. Um, yeah. That really wasn't my problem. Drugs and alcohol were really not my problem. They were a symptom of 
a much deeper problem, Mm -hmm. much, you know, a lot deeper issues. So when I got out of prison, I went, you know, to addiction support groups. As I've grown into trauma work, there are some things about the 12 steps. Ultimately, the 12 steps are not trauma informed. So the 12 Mm -hmm. steps are beautiful for what they're designed for. Mm-hmm. but they don't do anything for what they're not designed for, which is, yeah. per- which makes sense. That's not saying anything bad. They're just not trauma informed. Yeah. The language kind of need not- both. <laughs> yeah. The language is not trauma informed. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have to be very careful because what happened is about two years of my recovery. I mean, I just was um, beginning to really, 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 really suffer again really start questioning about, you know, ending my life. Um, Mm -hmm. I was pregnant with my son and I thought I was going to end both of our lives Mm -hmm. because I thought I was not made to be a sober person. Mm -hmm. I am working the program. I'm doing everything I'm told I'm supposed to do. I'm being told that it works if you work it. So you're not, you must not be working it right or good enough or hard enough that this is the answer. And, um, I, I had another really pivotal moment where, you know, I was sitting in my house, it was nighttime, very much like a movie. Like it was all dark and only the light of the laptop shining on my face. (laughs) Mm. And I was alone and I decided to Google in the search bar, um, sexual abuse. Wow. It was the first time that I had ever acknowledged that maybe I was abused. Hmm. Wow. And I, At what age? 35. Oh, interesting. Yeah. It was the first time I'd really, really acknowledged that maybe I don't own all that stuff. And what I found that night was changed my entire life because mm-hmm. every link I would just scrolling past link after link after link reading symptom after symptom after symptom and I was like that's me yeah oh my god that's me check 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 yeah there's not something wrong with me something happened to me and I was reading people share openly about the things that I was sure if anybody ever knew about they would never want to know me Mm. And it's like that powerful, the two words, the me too, you know, just, yeah, and that does yeah. not have to be just about sexual violence or assault. Right. That is anything under the sun yeah. to know that you are not alone. Yeah. You are not deformed. You are not maladjust, you know, maladapted. You are something happened and you're not alone. Like mm-hmm. no matter what it is that you feel that is just so, disgusting and dirty and and you're just so damaged that you can't possibly ever share I promise you that there are giant communities healing from that very very thing yeah I was just gonna say that like I feel like the the community of survivors is Mm. so important just for the simple fact of knowing like not only am I not the only one that went through this, but also I'm not the only one that thought this thing about myself because of the thing that we share, you know, like there's so many parts and pieces that are common and not just with sexual abuse, even domestic violence survivors can feel that it was their fault, you know, they asked for it or things like that. Like just to have that community to 
listen to your story to relate to it, or I'm listening to yours and I'm like, oh yeah, I totally thought that too. Or it's, I think that's one of the been the most powerful pieces to my healing and my recovery. It, it is to yeah. know that you're not alone, yeah. to know that you're not the only one that feels this way um, is so important and so powerful and crucial to yeah. healing from anything, to know that there's safe places. Healing happens in safety. It does not happen anywhere where there's judgment or um, shaming or you know any of that. It has to happen in complete inclusive safety. A lot has risen to the surface in 2020. If you're a survivor of sexual abuse, the isolation, unknowns, and exhaustion may be enough to have you searching for a safe place to belong, a place where questions are welcome and your story is safe. Maybe you've experienced some healing, but you long to be unleashed. I am Nicole Braddock Bromley. I'm an author, an activist, and a sexual abuse survivor. And I am so excited to tell you about something I've been working on. It's an eight-session e-course and virtual support group where you'll meet virtually with survivors just like you who are in various places on the lifelong journey of healing from sexual abuse. And I'm super pumped to let you know that I will be co-leading all of the live groups that are starting in February. This road is long, but we don't have to walk alone. Join us as we make 2021 a year to become Unleashed, where you can experience belonging and free your wild soul. Unleashed has officially launched. Grab your seat. Get signed up now at IamOneVoice.org. That's IamOneVoice.org. And so after that night, I just, I remember I started sitting on like a fly in the wall. I never spoke about anything. I never, um, I just kind of started listening and, and reading and like mm. just really absorbing that kind of what had happened to me and, and why I'm feeling the way I do and the fears I had about the kind of mother I would be. I had fears I would sexually abuse my children, which is very common as well and is very hard to talk about and admit, but it is super important that I do that because that shame that you hold about that, that fear, it, you're not alone. That is a, um, something that I hear from many, many survivors. And um, just a lot of stuff, you know, I had no clue how to be a woman. I had no clue how to be a mom. I just, yeah, there was a lot mm -hmm. of stuff that came up. I wanted and, to ask you about that. Just mm -hmm. a couple things, you know, as you for one, your book, your book is called the shape, shape of a woman. And I mm -hmm. think that's a really interesting title. And I'd love for you to unpack that just, you know, especially coming from a mother wound and healing that feminine part of you, mm -hmm. what that looks like. And the other question is, um, did you talk about your experiences with your children? And if so, what's that look like? So my book is shape of a woman, because ultimately, you know, I have been shaped a certain way. Right. I mean, mm -hmm. from childhood on, I have been shaped a certain way and I don't, I do not need to discard that or be ashamed of that or, or keep that a secret, but I am not bound to how I have been shaped. Yeah. And so I am reshaping myself mm. every day. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I not having a mother 
that really is what I don't have a mother. So although she is alive, that does not mean that she is a mother or a present or has ever been present. So I had to go through the grieving process of grieving a parent that's still alive. Um, I also do not speak to my father because of many other um, abusive things Mm -hmm. and um you know just yeah it's just not a healthy environment over there at all and um over there yeah (laughs) yeah get it over there yeah we just uh it's just not (laughs) unfortunately they exist the way the same way they always have and so I just can't have that in my life but Mm -hmm. that doesn't mean I don't have space for things to change someday if that happens yeah, it's healthy. But for now, yeah, for now, it's just, I cannot, it's better for me. So, yeah. Um, you know, it was very difficult. It's been interesting to, I, I see women, you know, like giving, you know, in, in the hospital. And, you know, I remember going to the hospital with my son, being, you know, going to labor with my son. Mm-hmm. And the nurse is saying, oh, is your mom coming? And, you know, um, I just thought, no she's not, you know, and and she, she's just never going to, you know, it's, um, Mm -hmm. at that time I had not detached from her, you know, completely, but she didn't come. Yeah. Um, and I remember, you know, having my son and them laying him on my chest and I, I looked at his, you know, pink face and he's crying and screaming and I've all my fears just kind of went away and I I finally felt like capable that, that's probably the best word just capable of of way more than I've ever thought about and believed about myself mm. and I learned how to be a mother by watching mothers I admire sure. <laughs> I, I I watch women and um women that I really respect and admire and I kind of pick pieces from how they do things and and brought them home and really learned to trust the mother of my own heart Um, yeah and that's how I reparent myself as well I reparent the little Mm. you know my the little girl in my own childhood yeah from the mother of who I am yes yeah that's awesome um, what was the other question? You asked me? Well, yeah. And just thinking of you as a mom now, you know, yeah. have you, have you had conversations oh, with your right. children? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Um, age appropriate. Of course I have a seven-year-old and a three-year-old. Uh-huh. Um, one thing that is super important to me and, and I really speak as much as I can about this. I mean, there's so many things I could speak on. I cannot tackle all the things all the time. Listen, right? as I'm sitting here, I'm thinking, okay, could we do like a mini series? <laughs> Cause you have so much wisdom and God, you've been through too much. I sometimes I just no. think, God, I have two, I need to open like five different social medias, one for sexual <laughs> trauma, one for addiction, yeah. one for harm reduction. Yeah. It's like, right. it's very really difficult. I'm kind of all over the place, but um, <laughs> yeah. So one thing is consent. So I, I really um, yeah, that's good. teach my children that they are a body autonomous, that they um, own their own bodies. They have a right not to want mm. to hug or kiss even a grandparent, an aunt, Santa. Yeah. Um, I want them to always feel and control their bodies and that no matter what they choose 
to do with that, what, no matter what they don't feel comfortable with or whatever, that I will always 100% be behind them to protect that. Yeah. Um, you know, I grew up being taught that good girls do what adults ask them to do. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I was, I was raised that, you know, good girls, you know, don't make a fuss, good girls, you know, if somebody calls you over to sit on your lap, you do it, especially if it's, you know, quote unquote elder. Mm-hmm. Um, and these may be small things to some parents, they may seem harmless to have your kids sit on Santa's lap and they're crying and it's for a cute picture. And I, and I'm not trying to shame anyone that's done that, but what I'd like to do is maybe just, um, educate the flip side of that is that what's actually happening um, is that you're teaching your children that they don't have control over their bodies and that it's more important to make an adult happy than it is for them to be afraid or uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And so with my kids, you know, consent is huge. My son being seven, um, he does know a little bit about what happened to mommy. Um, just that, you know, about touching any part of your body, but especially, you know, privates and we don't have any body secrets and we don't call things privates. We call them penis and vagina. We have no pet words because pet words are a huge um, red flag for predators. Um, We call them exactly as they are. And um, I will always be really open with my kids about everything because I really want um, them to know that there's nothing that they could ever share with me that would ever make me um, love them or even not love them less be against them. So we do talk about, um, you know, my son does know that I went to prison. Mm -hmm. Um, He, and that that, that was actually an accident. (laughs) Oh no. It was at that, the prison part was actually an accident. So I do lots of podcasts and lots of interviews and he overheard me say that I went to prison. And so, yeah, always how it happens in my house too. I was not quite prepared for that conversation at that point. Right. (laughs) But, But, you know, it was very interesting because we were in the car and he goes, mommy, did you really go to prison? And I'm like, oh, geez, here we go. (laughs) And I go, you know what? I did. And so we had this really great conversation about (laughs) how, you know, sometimes people make mistakes and no matter what mistake you make that you can always, always turn around, you know, Mm -hmm. you can, it doesn't mean you're a bad person. And, and, you know, we had, it was just a really great conversation that, you know, and he's like, so even if I go to prison, will you still, you know, I don't know if he said, love me, or will you be mad at me? And I said, no, you know, I want, I want my kids to, I just secrets are so dangerous, no matter what they're about. Yeah. Um, And so, yeah, he knows that. um, So I am in recovery. His dad is also in recovery. Um, We always celebrate our years. Um, They don't really dive too deep. And we don't dive too deep into particular drugs yet, but they know um, alcohol and that mommy and daddy don't drink. And I don't teach them that alcohol is bad, but that alcohol makes some people sick and sick to him can mean you have a tummy ache and diarrhea, you know, for all he knows Mm -hmm. that's sick. So, and that is true. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. So he's proud of us for, you know, not drinking, but he knows that I go work, um, you know, on the streets, um, with people and, um, that, you know, they are worthy of love and, um, that we never, 
point at people and and say you know they're losers or or mm-hmm. hobos or yeah. you know whatever you know terms are that they are just as worthy of people as people as we are yeah that's great um yeah i love so, how you know that you're you're not looking back at your journey and just trying to deny the reality of it. Like this is something that you've taken and you are making the next day better, not just for you, but for everybody who crosses your path. Like you're just such a beautiful, amazing person, Jen. It's just a real treat for us to chat with you today. I'm wondering what is giving you hope and life in this part of your lifelong journey is there anything like right now um that's really keeping you going whether it's some sort of self-care whether it's just continuing to walk out your sobriety um certain community um certain candy bar i don't know (laughs) (laughs) well starbucks okay okay starbucks is what's keeping me alive <laughs> great I hope they will pay big time know, for this right? commercial that you just done thank you <laughs> sponsor me Starbucks yes Woo. so um there's so many things gosh my life is so full and mm. so, so um, awesome to hear I mean you probably never thought you'd say that no no it's just no I never thought that I would wake mm. up in the morning and you know, get up early and have my time and journal and write and, you know, do inner child meditation, which I highly recommend. Mm. Um, and really just have not just exist anymore. You know, survival is like just existing. Survival is wonderful, but it's not really living. No, (laughs) it's just treading water. Yeah. And so treading water is keeping your head above water, but you're not really swimming. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like the same thing. So yeah, today I'm swimming. It's like amazing. So, um, you know, obviously my survivor family, um, I love just immensely my recovery family. I love cement immensely. Most of them are overlapped Mm -hmm. because like I said, trauma and addiction is very common. Right. Um, I mm. also love my harm reduction community, which, um, if you're not familiar with harm reduction, it, it's just, um, you know, I, I provide, I am a sober person that provides services for people to be able to use drugs more safely hmm. because people that use drugs are not worth any less. Right. So, yeah. Um, you know, harm reduction is about, you know, reducing the harm without demanding that somebody reduce their use Mm -hmm. because nobody knows, nobody knows how somebody gets where they are Mm -hmm. and where somebody is, is not who somebody is. And their lives are just as valuable as anybody else's. And when you give seeds of kindness and, and love and compassion without an agenda, you would be very surprised at what happens. <laughs> That's they, where the magic is. Not. That's where the magic is. Yeah. So I work with the, um, you know, on Skid Row in, in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. I mean, these are people that are at the very, they're living, uh, the humane society would not allow a dog to live that way. Huh. It's Goodness. beyond, wow. it's beyond what 
most people have ever seen. And I love these people like with my entire heart. These yeah. are the most wonderful people. And so I, you know, we do food and hygiene kits and um, harm reduction and, and all kinds of stuff. So that really just, I love so, so much. Yeah. And then I also am a founding host of the Sober Mom Squad, which is a community for sober or sober curious moms, moms to be. Um, which is just so, I mean, I love these women as well. I mean, it's just, we have like several meetups a day via zoom, obviously right now, um, yeah. you know, master classes. I talk a lot about trauma. We have lots of experts. It's just, I am involved in so much. I wish I could do more, you know, but of course, you know, I'm also a mom, you know, yeah. Hey, there's only like, so many hours in a day. <laughs> yeah. There is only so many hours in the day. Yeah. It's, it's just amazing to me yeah. that everything that I thought was wrong about me, I use today to touch people's lives. And that's amazing. That is such a testimony of what you say, you know, as a resurrection of your life. Yes. It's truly a picture of it. Goodness, Jen. Where can people find you? Um, everybody needs to get your book. It's called Shape of a Woman by Jen Elizabeth. Where can people find you, follow you, get more of you? <laughs> so I am pretty much on social, all the social media stuff uh, as resurrection with a K underscore of underscore me. Okay. Um, I do most of my work on Instagram because I'm telling you, I just cannot spread myself any thinner than I am, but I do have a Facebook and Twitter. Um, I do have a website, resurrectionofme.com. A lot of my writing and articles um, and press is under my name, Jen Elizabeth. So you could Google Jen Elizabeth Um, and the sober mom squad, which is also amazing. If you're anyone is a mom or a future mom and you are living or just exploring you know, a sober life or just want to know what it looks like to be a mom in sobriety and have other just moms in sobriety, um, community and support. Um, Mm -hmm. that's a great place. And, um, yeah, I work with the sidewalk project, um, out of LA for, um, all the work that we do on Skid Row and, Gosh, I think that's it. I mean, I think. Yeah, just that. <laughs> just those couple of things. For now, and I am, planning, I am planning to write another book eventually. Yes. <laughs> Soon, but yeah. Awesome. Wow. Well, we just adore you. I am really Aww. grateful for this time and um, just really want to bless like everything you're doing. Just mm. keep going. And I think we're going to need to have you back. <laughs> anytime awesome anytime thank you so much for listening be sure to subscribe write a review if you heard something you liked even invite others to listen so we can be on this healing journey together you can check us out on facebook or go to iamonevoice.org